is the good news of the gospel. Who a God who had been ignored, disobeyed, rebelled against, whose name has been blasphemed, whose purposes had been denied and fought against, sent his son looking for sinners to turn people who had turned their backs on him, acted as if he not only did not exist, but as if, as if he were the enemy. He sent his son Jesus to die in our place, living righteously the life that we did not have. And now we're welcomed, former rebels are welcomed into God's family. And because of that good news, that's the gospel. Now, forever and eternally, God really is for us. He can never, ever be against those who are in Christ. You're as accepted and as beloved. You are as holy and as righteous as Jesus is himself from the Father's point of view. Not on earth, someday in glory. Not yet here on earth, but as beloved, as cared for, as cherished, as Jesus himself. That's it's mind-blowing. It's hard sometimes for me to say it, even though I know it's the gospel truth, because it sounds so amazingly good. It sounds actually impossible. It sounds too good to be true. That's how good and loving and faithful your heavenly Father is when you turn to Christ. So let's pray and thank him, and then I have the privilege of introducing you to two very special people. Father, thank you for all of your gifts. Thank you for a beautiful day. And as we enjoy this temperate, pleasant, weather, we're reminded that up and down the state, people are fighting, in many cases, literally for their lives. There are thousands and thousands and thousands trying to stop the blazes that have been so destructive and displaced so many. Lord, raise up good, faithful, generous Christians in all of those areas of need, including here in Huntington Beach and Fountain Valley, Garden Grove, Westminster, all the communities, Lord, where we uh, represent you as part of this church family. May the good news shine in this difficult time in our nation and in our own local community. And thank you, Father, that you have blessed us in this way through your Son, Jesus Christ, as we continue to hear about him. Help us pay attention and believe and act upon your truth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As you know, if you're part of this church family, if you've been here for even six months, you've probably learned how important foreign missions are to this church family. It's vital. And today I'm privileged to introduce to you two of our missionaries that are already as part of our church family. Uh, I know the Longs and know their reputation, so we actually began supporting them months ago, nearly a year ago, I believe, but only now are they able to come and visit and present to you a little slice of their lives and what God has called them to do in Egypt. They served there for years. They raised their children in Egypt, and then they came home, served in the missions office, supporting and helping and equipping other missionaries and future missionaries, and now uh, just themselves, their children are grown, but God has called them back to the glorious work that he is doing in Cairo, Egypt. Would you help me welcome, please, Tim and Jackie Long. Thank you. Well, thank you all for having us. We're really privileged and honored to be here. Um, how many of y'all like change? Is there very many of you out there that like change? I'm getting more used to it nowadays. Um, you know, a year ago, 
when we uh, got reinstated, we never thought that things would change like they have changed. But things are constantly changing, aren't they? And um, things are going to be a lot different when we go back to Egypt this time than they were the first time. Uh, the first time we went to Egypt, we had three small kids that traveled with us on deputation and went with us when we went to the field. They were 12, 10, and 7. And I have to say, deputation has definitely been different this time. Um, it's been really enjoyable. Uh, we've gotten to be more relaxed and, and everything. But also, when I, when I heard we were going to come to California, I was so excited. I've never been out here, and there's so many things. We, we like to see the countryside and things like that. But with this virus and with the fires, that's all changed. So there's always a lot of change going on around us. Um, my ministry will look a lot different because, uh, you know, the first thing I was obligated to was my children. And uh, this time I will have a lot more time to be more, um, be able to travel with Tim and things like that. The second thing that's different about our ministry this time, um, we're still going to have a focus with our churches that are there, but we're going to be working a lot more with refugees. Uh, the refugees are just pouring into Egypt as they are, you know, all over the world. And um, we even have people in our churches there that are um, burdened to work with the refugees that, come, that are coming into Egypt. Uh, the third difference is going back, we will have lots more knowledge and experience of what we're getting ourselves into. Um, the first time we went, we didn't know a single soul uh, we had talked to somebody on the phone, one person, I think, but um, we didn't know the culture. We didn't know anybody. And now we're going back to people that are friends that are close and closer uh, than even some of our family. And uh, we just thank you so much for having us and for being on board with us. We look forward to what um, what we're going to do together. Uh, first I mean, Philippians uh, 1 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good, work, a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And you know, God began a good work in Egypt. Um, even before we got there, things were being prepared for us to be there, and they're being prepared again. And God's not finished with Egypt, and He's not finished with us. So we appreciate your prayers and your support, and thank you again for having us. We are blessed to be here, and I, I want to just say thank you for jumping on board with us, really, in preparation for our return. This is something we prayed about for many years. Uh, when we went to Egypt initially, uh, we were out on deputation the first time. That's where we raised our support and our funds to be able to go, and we did that and started in 2000, and it was at the very end of our deputation trail uh, that 9-11 happened and 9-11-2001, and for some churches, you know, they were wondering, are you still going to go? And it was new to us. We had a young family, and we didn't have any direction not to go. We were actually excited to get there, knowing that God was at work anyway. And we, we knew that, and when we got there, 
it was amazing how God took that, that time of instability within our world and really utilized it for his glory, opening up the door for us in many ways. We had many people that would ask us why we were there because they saw a lot of foreigners leaving and opening the door for us to have ministry. In addition, God opened the door for us to have part in a church downtown and, and work with them in Cairo, Egypt, which one of our good friends is here this morning, Mario. He's blessed me with being here. Uh, he's moved here recently uh, to America, and we got to meet with some other friends uh, from the church yesterday. And it's a blessing to be able to see God continuing to use them in their lives and also to know what God was doing in their lives back then and how God's using them. And friends like him are people that we love and we, we pray for every day uh, as God uses them to be world changers and change the world. We were blessed in the fact that when we went to the church, it was actually getting ready to go through a pastoral change as well. And God allowed us to be a part of that. And Pastor Monir, who is the pastor of the church there, uh, does such a fine job with the people. Uh, really, he does and with the church and the church continues to grow, and other churches as well within the country. Uh, but when we went there, we were just amazed at how beautiful the Egyptian people are. I fell in love with the people. But God also opened up another ministry for us while we were there that we didn't anticipate, and that was a ministry, ministry with refugees. I was approached at one point about coming alongside and helping a Sudanese school out and asked if I would uh, head the, the board uh, for the school. The United Nations has started several schools for the refugees that were there, many of the Sudanese and others. It's hard for them to get into the Egyptian schools because the Egyptian schools are so crowded. Uh, so the United Nations had started these schools, but they couldn't fund them moving forward. So they stepped out, they left, uh, and the school struggled. It was at this point that I met a man uh, that uh, I began to be able to work with and got to disciple uh, and God was using him in a great way, and he has a tremendous story that I want to tell you how it impacted and changed the lives of so many others. Muhammad was a man that had come to Egypt out of the Sudan. Uh, Sudan had suffered great uh, famine and war. In particular, Muslims were persecuting Muslims. And he had come to Cairo and with many other refugees but it began to go to school at the Al-Azhar University there, the oldest university in the world. And it's at Al-Azhar that uh, people will learn different sciences and things like that, but in particular, it's a training center for Islam and a training center for Muslims to be able to go into the world and basically evangelize people to Islam. And that's what he was preparing to do. In fact, he had come to Cairo, and he was in his fourth year, his final year of studies at the university, and, and his desire was to go back to Sudan, to his village, to start a mosque, and to, to be able to preach uh, Islam to, to the people, and he, he desired that. But one of the problems or issues that he came across was in the Quran he kept looking at, and this is his testimony of how Isa Masih within the Quran was so different from other prophets. In particular, Isa Masih, uh, of course, was born of a virgin, but he performed great miracles, even that of raising people from the dead. He had given life to that which didn't have life. These were things that intrigued him in such a way that he was unsure what to do with it, so he started asking questions. 
in his classes, uh, which didn't win him any favor. So he began talking to students between classes, which didn't win him any more favor. And eventually he was all but ex- being, going to be expelled from the school if he didn't stop. He was told to stop bringing up the questions that he had. Professors thought it was confusing other, other students, and that's, he didn't know what to do. He just said, what do I do? They told him to go to a church, find a church, find Christians, talk to somebody else. And he was unsure. I mean, here he is, Sudanese. He's in a foreign country to himself, and he's figuring, I've got to go talk to somebody. So he started going church to church. And you've got to understand in the context of a place like the Middle East and even Egypt, uh, it can be very hard sometimes when, when somebody just approaches you from a Muslim background and they start asking you questions, you're wondering, okay, what, what's behind this? It can be also very challenging in regard, are they working for the government? Or are they working for someone? And a lot of care is taken. But churches, one by one, actually, he said, just told him that he needed to go somewhere else. They didn't want to talk to him. They were not interested. And it wasn't a lack of love as much as it was fear. And I think we can all uh, look at that sometimes and say that of ourselves. Maybe we've been in a conversation with someone where fear takes over that conversation regarding our faith. But that happened time and time and time again. And Muhammad, he said, I finally went to, I was passing by. I was about to give up. I'd gone to six churches and no one would talk to me. And he said, as I was going back to the mosque, he said, I was ready to give up. And I just raised my hands and I said, God, if you're real, if you really have the answers for me, give me someone to talk to. And he said, as I was passing by a building, there was this man that beckoned me just from there of this, this light saying, come here, come here. And he said, I walked in and at this church and I met a pastor and this pastor I talked to said, come in and began the conversation. Now, like with any Muslims, it isn't something that just happens immediately. <laughs> it took months and months and months of this pastor and him conversing and talking through scriptures. But eventually, Muhammad accepted Jesus Christ. It wasn't long after this that I met him. And I got the privilege of being able to disciple him and work with him. Muhammad became a changed man after he met Jesus. In fact, I met him through the school because his kids had attended the school. They'd been being taught Islam and, and we were challenged as Westerners, what could we do to help the school continue to run? And, and churches there got on board with helping that and helped the school stay funded. But one of the greatest difficulties was what do we do to change things over to teaching the Bible instead of the Quran? And so that's what we did. And we prepared, we taught teachers. We had good Christian men and women from the Sudanese background and from other backgrounds that would come in and teach those classes for those hundreds of kids. But to Muhammad, who, by the way, his name was Muhammad Yusuf. Uh, we began, his name became Mojo. It was much easier to pronounce. But Mojo uh, really was on fire for, for Jesus. And his desire was, what do we do to win people to Jesus? And that's what he began doing, taking the gospel, giving the gospel to families. Over 80% of the kids in the school were from a Muslim background, but they all had to sign papers that they knew we'd be teaching the Bible, and they were okay with that. They just wanted their kids to have an education. And that's what we did. And God really worked through that. Literally, Muhammad or Mojo just stepped up in witnessing the families. And I get to go with him. We would work through scriptures together. And he, he learned more and became prepared. 
But hundreds of Muslims came to Christ through that community and through his witness, bold witness, to the point that after a couple of years, he said, I want to go back to Sudan. Now, I'm thinking you were going to go back to Sudan to start a mosque, <laughs> to preach Islam. What are you doing? And he said, I got to go back and tell my people about Jesus and tell my village. And I thought when we were with him that last night and I prayed with him, I was, I was really just overtaken that it would be the last time I would see him. But God had different plans. He went back to Sudan. He went to his village, which, by the way, was in the north, not in the south. Went back to his village, and he told those elders that he met with in that first meeting what God had done in his life. Two of them were amazed by his testimony and accepted Jesus Christ right there. God had already been working in the community, and as he continued, he prepared himself to go back. The community said, we want you to come back, start a church, as well as a school for the kids and teach our kids the Bible. And that's what he did. He took his family, his wife, his two kids, and went back. And from that, he was able to be a witness to his community. Most of that community, that village, has come to Christ. And now he has moved on to repeat the same thing again in a village further away, about 30 minutes away. And he continues that work. It's amazing how God can take just one individual and use them in such a powerful way to help in seeing others come to Christ. He literally has become an Apostle Paul to the Sudanese. And we, we appreciate the testimony of people like that. But it makes me think, how many more are there out there like that? That we need to be faithful in taking the gospel message. We need to be ready when they approach us to give an answer of the faith that God has given us. God gives us those opportunities, and what will we do with them? As the refugee population or displaced peoples grow by 37,000 a day, over 74 million displaced people in the world today, who's going to go? And that's really our desire and our prayer. When we go back, we would love to see uh, more Egyptian people that are ready to give their lives to serve in their own communities with the refugee population, to maybe even go into some of those hard areas. And I, I, my desire is to see churches started and, and go again, go strong in places like Syria. We have a good Egyptian doctor friend that that's where he's working in the north of Syria right now and saying, when are you coming? When are you coming? And we appreciate you being partners with us to go back. We don't know what God's going to do this time. We didn't know what God was going to do last time. I shared the first service. Really, I'm sorry you took us on because we're some of the dumbest missionaries you'll ever have. Because we never know what God's going to do. God does what God does. And sometimes it seems like we're just along for the ride. Uh, and it's a joy to be on that ride and to, to be there. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 7 this morning. Again, thank you for being partners with us. I want to share some scripture with you this morning and just preach. I pray that it challenges you. It challenges me even when I go through this. Another time here of what I'm doing for the Lord and whether I'm doing what I should be doing. But we see here in 2 Kings chapter 7 verses 1 through 10, God is about to do a mighty work in the previous chapters, to just give you a little bit of history and background to things, God has already been doing a work. And in regards to that, we see a, a heathen people, a people 
in this nation of northern Israel that the capital is at Samaria that has turned against God. They've turned to idols. They're worshiping Baal. And in giving themselves over to these evil things, God has been at work. But I want you to understand, God also has remained faithful and merciful. Faithful and merciful. And we will see that towards the end of this this session this morning. In chapter 6, it tells us that the city of Samaria, this capital here in northern Israel, it had been surrounded by this army from the north, from Syria. They had come down, and that was the tactic of war. You didn't want to lose a lot of soldiers. Then what you would do is you would surround a city if you knew that that was basically all you had to defeat, and you would starve people to death. And that's what they were doing. They were starving them to death. And we see in chapter 6 that the, the situation was so bad, people were so hungry, that for a high amount of dollars or, or shekels, I guess you would say, they were silver, they were, they were selling or buying bird dung, the waste of birds to eat. They were, they were purchasing the, the heads of donkeys to, to boil, to eat. But it had even gotten worse to the point that families were giving their children. Mothers would say to other mothers, we can eat your child today and we'll eat mine tomorrow. How terrible is that? Cannibalism itself was rife within the city. And we see within the context of all this that's going on that Elisha the prophet, the man of God, is about to make a statement in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7 that, listen, this is about to end, and by this time tomorrow, everything's going to be, <laughs> you, you can get all, all you want buffet, okay, that's my interpretation of it, anyway, for, for, for a penny. You can eat all you want. And what he's saying here is, Elisha says in verse number one, Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah, a fine flour, shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs, a barley for a shekel, at the gate of Samaria. Food's going to be abundant, <laughs> and you're going to be able to get it for nothing. And this is what he's saying to a starving people. Now, most of them would look at him and say, you are crazy. There's no way. Because of the, the life that they were living, the circumstances they were in, the army they were surrounded by, to them, everything was pretty certain the way things were laid out. But Elisha's saying things are about to be different. To the point that an officer, it says in verse 2, an officer of whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? If the, if the windows of heaven were to open up and food was to pour down, would it even be that way? And Elijah turns, or Elisha turns around and says to him, he said, in fact, you shall see it with your own eyes but you shall not eat of it. You won't get to be rewarded with it. And this is where our text really takes, uh, I guess you could say, a turn. We're introduced to four lepers. And that's our, our lesson this morning. I want us to see a lesson in New Testament missions from four Old Testament lepers. A lesson in New Testament missions from four Old Testament lepers. And I'm going to read the text here, beginning verse 3, and I'll actually read through 11. It says, Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, 
Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now, therefore, come. Let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. And if they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army, so that they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered into another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news and we remain silent. If we wait until, tomorrow, until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, we went to the Syrian camp and surprisingly, no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out and they told it to the king's household inside. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. As I'm looking at our passage here, one of the things that really intrigues me as I find it is that we see a different kind of uh, aspect of lepers that were introduced to other than in the New Testament. We see lepers in the New Testament many times. Jesus is healing them again and again. And we know the life of a leper from what we are presented there by the, the Gospels as well as other historians outside of the Bible. Lepers were just not a welcome people, <laughs> okay? They were a disease and an infection that was to remain outside the camp. You're not welcome, basically. And therefore, we see these lepers sitting at the gate of the city, a city that inside is starving to death and is surrounded by an army, and here they are kind of in between, in the middle. Now, leprosy itself is a pretty gruesome disease. The fact that it eats away at the flesh, and in the flesh, as people are being eaten, their flesh is being eaten away at, they lose a sense of nerve and feeling and, and can bump things and hit things and Flesh falls off and skin falls off and fingers and toes fall off and holes that get infected and develop within the skin is pretty nasty. It can be pretty horrendous. And these men have been placed outside the camp. And they're, they're in, the, in, the, in the gate of the city. And now they're contemplating their life or lack of life and definitely lack of hope of any life that they have. Now, I can't imagine what it would be like to live in those days with that, other than the fact sometimes we look at certain diseases around us today, and it becomes a, a thing where it's like, oh, stay away from me. Somebody coughed. 
<laughs> they must have something. Go away. We're getting that way, it seems like, today at times. But these lepers, they're dealing with a pain and agony of their own flesh. They're not only dealing with that, they are dealing with really an excommunication from the family, the community that they are part of. And God help us. I mean, we have maybe realized more in the last six months the importance of community and family. So one thing I love about the Egyptian church is the community that's developed, the family, the closeness that you have. As Jackie said, people that become as family. You develop that. And we should, we should desire that and long for that in our churches. But these men have been put out. And they're suffering from that. So they had a pretty terrible situation that they lived in or lived amongst. But not only that, they've been put at the gate of the city between the army and starvation. Between the army and starvation. So I want us to see their condition. Their condition was horrible. It tells us that of their leprosy that they had. They were basically men that were hopeless, without hope. The disease itself meant certain death. And not only that, the starvation around them guaranteed it. It guaranteed it. These four men, it tells us that, that they were sitting out there. Of course, they're hungry, but they're hurting. And it reminds me of the world that we live in today that's the same way. We live in a world where people are hurting. They're hungry for truth. They want to know that there's something more to this life than what they experience today. We have a world around us that is hopeless apart from Jesus Christ. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 to the church at Ephesus in verses 1 through 3, he's speaking to them as a church that in you, he says, has he quickened. He brought, he's given life. Jesus has given life to you who were dead in trespasses and sins. And he says, wherein at time past, in the past, he says, you walked according to the course of this world. Okay, according to the prince and power of the air. That's how you walked before. But you've been given life and you have that now. We have life through Jesus Christ. Do we not? We have life through Jesus Christ. We have hope in Jesus Christ. Regardless of the circumstances, the situation we're in, we have hope. Our condition does not have to remain hopeless that we live in today. We do not have to be hopeless unless we do not have to be hopeless unless we choose to live apart from Jesus Christ in our lives. And that leads us to the next section or number two that I want us to look at, and that's the consequence. The consequence. So the first thing is, of course, their condition, and it was a hopeless condition. The consequence of, of their life and the life that they had was certain. It was certain. In verse 3, it says these four leprous men, they were sitting at the gate, and basically, why are we sitting here till we die? We're just sitting here. Why are we sitting here till we die? And I'd, I'd look at people like that today. There are people all around us that are separated from God. Scripture tells us in Romans 3.23, what? For all of sin comes short of the glory of God. It's true, isn't it? We have a world around us that's lost. They're separated from God. But the great thing about it is Romans 6.23 tells us, yes, but the wages of sin is death, 
But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is an answer. There is a solution. There is hope. And that hope is in Jesus Christ. And we don't have to remain where we're at. But the consequence of sin is clear. It's death. It's death. And so we're left with the choice. And we see that with these, these men in verse number four. They were given a choice, and their choice seemed, seemed obvious anyway. It says here, if we say we will enter into the city, the famine is there. Okay? Not much hope, and we'll die there. We go into the city, we're going to go in, and we're going to die. And then they turn around, and they say, yeah, and if we sit here at the gate, we die also. Okay, death. Going in, death, we sit here. But now therefore come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. Let's go to the enemy and let's just surrender and give up. And they say, if they keep us alive, we live. We live, but if they kill us, we only die. I don't, I don't know about you, but I find that kind of funny. It's, it's like, okay, we go to the city, we die. We sit here, we die. We can go to the enemy army. They might save us. If they do, we live, but odds are they're going to kill us and we're going to die. Now, those aren't the odds you take to Vegas, okay? You don't go to Vegas saying, hey, we're all excited about this. We can't wait. We got a big chance of losing. Of course, most people do anyway when they go and spend their money, but they do it anyway, don't they? Uh, but I, 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 the odds that they've got here are, are remarkably against them. They're seeing death, but they know that they have one obvious choice. And that's to go to the enemy, to do the hard thing, to do the difficult thing, to do the hard thing. It was obvious, but it was a hard choice to make. And you know, you and I are just like these four lepers. We have a choice to make. We have a choice to make, and that's whether or not that we will leave the world behind and we will follow Christ. And it's not necessarily the easiest thing, following Jesus Christ. Sometimes it can be very difficult. Sometimes it can mean a separation between you and family and you and friends and, and you and a, a life that maybe seemed enjoyable, okay? But the choice is obvious if it means eternal life. And we can have that in Jesus Christ, it says here. And so their choice was obvious, and they decide we're going to go to the enemy camp. And that means, number four, then they make a commitment, their choice was obvious, number three, but their choice and then the commitment. And this, this commitment was courageous. It really was. To go to the enemy camp was a courageous step on their behalf. And they, they left and they go to this enemy camp. It says they rose up in the twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp, the outside of the camp, there was no one there. No sentry, no guard, nobody there. Notice, these men didn't just sit there and talk about their options. They did something about it. We all have a choice in our life, and the question is, are we going to do something about it? Maybe in your giving of yourself to the Lord, accepting the salvation that's been provided through Jesus Christ. It may be in giving your life to God to serve Him full-time, maybe to go go across the sea or around the world to go to the difficult places, the hard places of the world where people need to hear the gospel message. 
But notice, they didn't just talk about it, they did something. And they got up and they went. They went to the Syrian camp. You know, the New Testament is filled with people like that. They're courageous in their life. They come to Jesus. They take a step out by faith. They do something about it. When they see Jesus passing through, they reach for the, the hem of his garment. Uh, whenever Jesus is passing through, they tear open a roof and they let their friend down for Jesus. They, they, they do the hard thing, don't they? But they make choices and they're committed and they make courageous choices in following Christ. And from that, we learn some things. That is faith turns our trials into triumph. You're going to have trials in your life. I have trials in my life. We all have had trials in our lives at times. If you haven't had trials, you're going to have trials. I'll just tell you that. We're going to have trials, but faith can turn those trials into triumph. And these men stepped out by faith, but it also can turn our suffering into strength, our suffering into strength. These men, they got up and I don't know how hard it was for them to walk, but with leprosy, it probably wasn't very easy to make the trip. <laughs> to have leprosy, it's easier probably just to sit than it is to get up and actually move. And they did it. And they moved and they went to the enemy camp. And it was there that we see that suffering turned into strength for them. And that led to the conclusion of what took place here. The conclusion of what took place, and that was the miraculous. The miraculous happened here. I say that because God's always at work. God's at work in the midst of things. When we were in Egypt, one of the things that, that was difficult for us was when the revolution happened in 2011, we were faced with the dilemma by our organization of whether or not to leave. Our organization said, we think it'd be best for you to leave and pull out and go. We didn't have peace with that. It was not an easy decision. We still had two of our kids with us there. It was, there were times that were very difficult and very trying. Circumstances were just different. You had uh, the usuality of police and military that initially were pulled off the streets and, and pulled back, and chaos reigned for a while. But eventually, it, it became difficult in the fact the Muslim Brotherhood took over. Our visas got to where they were restricted to one month where we had been able to maintain our business visa for a long time, it, and it was gone. We couldn't stay. But that was two years later, and we believe God wanted us to stay there. And I say that because God was at work. God was winning the battle. There were opportunities that the revolution opened up that we had never had before. We saw God doing things in the midst of hard situations, and it was because God was at work. It wasn't anything anybody else was doing. It was God doing it. Some of those situations uh, included meeting people we had never met before in our own community. We lived east of Cairo in an area called Rehab. Some would say rehab. We were in rehab for quite a while while we were there. But anyway, as we lived out there, it was difficult. Food ran out pretty quick because we were outside of Cairo and the instability happened in regards to you had a lot of bad people with weapons and things. And a lot of people were, have to protect their own neighborhoods. Ariel remembers that people protect their own neighborhoods. You, you would have to call to prayer at night. The last call to prayer, the men would go down into the streets and we'd protect our neighborhoods, park our cars on the end of the streets. We'd patrol our neighborhoods, bringing whatever weapons we had, which since guns were outlawed, the bad guys got guns and we got knives and sticks is usually the way it worked. But 
I had a 17-year-old son there, Levi. And he was kind of my walking buddy, my partner, that we got to walk around. We'd go down, we'd meet as, at the call to prayer with all the other men, and most of them would say, what in the world are you doing here? You need a... If I was you and I had that little blue passport book, I'd be out of here <laughs> real quick. And we'd, it gave us an opportunity to witness we'd never had before, to explain that God had brought us there, and he took care of us. He took care of our lives. He watched over us. We have nothing to fear when we have the Lord because he's winning, as we sang this morning, the battle. He's fighting, and he wins with victory. Now, I will tell you this. The stupidity of my son, who was 17 at the time, thought it was really cool to be defending his neighborhood with a stick and a knife. He said, Dad, isn't this the coolest thing in the world? I'm like, no, you're very stupid. Because they have guns, we don't. We have, we have sticks and knives, and these are bad people, okay? But he thought it was cool, but that's the mind of a teenager, I guess. Uh, but I say that because God gave us really the victory and himself the glory in the fact that we were able to talk to and witness to people we'd never been able to before. God did that. And God created those type of opportunities, and he's doing that for us today. In the midst of your circumstances, you are encountering, whether it's with a loss of job, whether it's with the virus itself, the pandemic, maybe a loss of money, maybe it's just a complete change of life and that being locked in. God, look for the opportunities God is making for you to be a witness to others. That's what he's doing. Now, God had given the victory in this circumstance. He had given the victory and army of, of Israel had done nothing. <laughs> They're locked down inside Samaria. The army's done nothing. These lepers, I'm sure it doesn't say anything about them approaching the camp and everybody runs. Instead, it says this great army of Assyrians heard what they thought. <laughs> and is it because it says, and what was it? And the Lord, right? It was God himself that did this. They heard these things and they thought armies were coming against them, hired by this army of Israel, the city of Israel? No. God was giving the victory in it. And when he gave the victory in it, great things happened. And it says here that in the conclusion that was miraculous, they went into the city and it was made known, it was manifest that God had done something. And they go to the first tent and they enjoy the buffet. All the food, all the drink, the clothes. And they keep some of it and they go and hide it. And they enjoy it so much, they go and do it again. Let's go to the next tent. And they eat more and they hide more and they're enjoying it. And it makes me think of the, the church in America today. We've been a church that has been blessed for so long. And we've been living off the, really many times, the fruits of those before us, enjoying. And I mean, we can look at it today and say, oh, things are so terrible for us here, I can tell you. You need to visit someplace outside of America once in a while, and you'll see what it's really like. We've got it so good here. But these men are enjoying that. And finally, they realize something. They come to the realization something was manifest. They said to one another, what? Look at this, that they're not doing well. Why? This isn't a good thing. In verse 9, we're not doing right. Because this day is a day of good news. See, they begin to enjoy the spoils of the victory, but there's an entire city sitting back there 
starving to death, eating their own kids, and they have done nothing to go tell them. Shame, they said. Shame on us. I could say that for us. Shame on us if we don't do the most that we can to make sure others hear, to take the gospel around the world, to tell our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones the truth of the hope that they can have. Shame on us if we're indulging in the privilege of the things we have as a church in America and others around the world are hurting and losing out and we turn a blind eye to that. May we be found faithful to do something. You see, what was happening here, they knew they needed to make it known. They knew this message is not ours to keep. (laughs) This was something God had done and others needed to hear. They were worried about if they waited. Now, they were worried that, man, what could happen to us if we wait here? We don't do nothing about it. What we really need to be concerned about as a church is if we wait and we don't do something about it, what happens to them? What happens to others? If we don't take them the good news of Jesus Christ, if we don't take them the gospel message, it's so important. And so they go and they share the message and then the victory is won and God's word comes true that Elisha spoke up from the very beginning that you're going to be able to eat in abundance and eat for nothing. What a blessing. Out of that, I have some truths that I want us to understand and know, truths to live by. You have that section in your bulletin there. First of all, your current circumstances are not meant to determine your future outcome. I don't care what your circumstances are today. That does not have to determine your future. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today can be the day of salvation. There'll be someone here to pray with you, to talk with you, the pastor and others that would pray with you and talk to you about that. Maybe you have have determined there's no way that I could go around the world and take the gospel. I'm scared to death of my neighbors. I'm scared to death of these people. But God's been working on your heart to do that. Stop and give him the victory. Let him fight the battle. It's not yours to fight. It's his. Your current circumstances don't have to determine your future outcome. The second thing is your abilities or inabilities, your abilities or inabilities do not limit the power and work of God. This city seemed pretty desperate. It seemed like a desperate situation. But your your abilities or inabilities do not need to determine or limit the power and work of God. God's at work. When we go back to Egypt, when we go back to the Middle East, there's other places I know that we're going to be going in the Middle East. We have people say, are you fearful? You know, okay, we're human. We're missionaries. We're human at times. You can be fearful of some situations, but we know God has, has the victory. He has the battle. He has it won, and it's his work. Whatever the outcome is, it doesn't matter. He can use us regardless. As I said, we're pretty stupid people. Jackie and I, right? Well, I am. Jackie's beautiful. She's very knowledgeable, very smart. I'm very stupid, I guess. But, but God is the one that can get the victory in our inabilities. The things that we feel like there's no way, not me. It can be, we get the Jonah effect. Couldn't be me. God wants to use you. And if he does, 
Surrender that. Give yourself to that. Because he's not limited. He's not limited. His work goes on. And he often does great things through pretty poor people. <laughs> people that, that don't have much to offer. And the third thing is your choices today not only affect you, but they impact others. Your choices today not only affect you, but they will impact others. Just like these lepers, their choice to serve themselves, to do for themselves, was an impact on the lives of those people still in the city. You get to choose today what you will do with your life. If God's calling you to serve, to go to your neighbors, to tell your friends, whatever it may be, their eternity depends on it. If it's to go around the world, he can use you for that. But if you say no, and you can, you can say no. That impacts the eternity of other people. So your choices today not only affect you, but impact others. Today's a day of salvation. If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that choice, and you choose not to, that choice affects you but it can also impact others as well. You need to look at it that way. There may be other people that once you have that hope and that good news, you can share it with as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for the many blessings that you've given us. You have given us really a great salvation that you have won the victory in. Father, I pray that you would just, uh, you would just help us to be faithful to see the need around the world. Let our eyes not be closed. Let it not be said that we, we wasted time, we wasted monies, we wasted our lives on things that are not important. Father, I pray that we would see the need to take the gospel around the world, how your work continues and, and should be done and you desire for it to be done through your people. But Lord, also knowing that you're at work and doing the great task and even without us, if that be the case. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Would you help me uh, thank Tim Long? <laughs> Folks, the prayer team will be under the canopy over here where it says Student Center. It would be just one of those God-sized things if God moved in the life of a couple from Missouri to go to Egypt, to come back to the United States, and then to decide to go back to Egypt to share the gospel with you in Huntington Beach so that today you could trust Christ as Savior. If you don't know Jesus for certain, if you literally wouldn't bet your whole life on the fact that your sins are forgiven and that you're going to heaven, that's our greatest desire for you. The prayer team will be over there. They'll be delighted to help you and pray with you. Pastors will be available as well. I'm going to be on this at this table over here myself. If you are new to this church, I'd love to introduce myself. I'd love to help you make a few of those friends that are needed for a journey like this to really feel and be part of a church family. And maybe God is stirring in your heart to serve as a missionary. Early this morning, I took advantage of the time zone change and messaged briefly with Nathan and Christy Wilson. They, got, they arrived in Kigali, Rwanda just a few weeks ago. They finally made it to Rwanda. They're in good shape. They're part of our church family as well. 
maybe you're hearing this and you're hearing that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And maybe, maybe you just have the slightest inkling. Maybe you have questions that God could possibly use you in that same way. There's, there's no extraordinary missionaries. We have the best missionaries on the planet. I've known them all my life. My parents are missionaries. I grew up in Mexico, as you know. I know missionaries. We have some of the finest people that I've ever met. But every missionary in the world is just an ordinary human being, just a saved child of God. Maybe you're next. If you think there's any chance, any inkling of that, if you would be willing to pray about that or consider that, I hope you'll pray, and I hope you'll send me an email or a text message as well, and just let me know what God is doing in your life. Maybe you'll be part of the next wave of Crosspoint going overseas. Will you stand with me, and we'll pray and thank God for the day we've had. Father, thank you for this morning. If there's a single person here, Lord, in, under this tent, in this service, or watching online who doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that they would settle that this morning before they leave. If there's a young man or a young woman here or a couple or a family that you are moving in their lives to step forward as the next missionaries, I pray that you would burden that, burden them with that and that they would, Lord, seek you and get a clear call and confirmation from you. For those who are new to this church family, Lord, we've been thrilled to welcome many new people in these weeks and a bunch of people in the first service. If there's a single person here who thinks of Cross Point as the place where they go to church, but they truly don't have friends here. They're not in a small group. They don't have people to walk the road of life with. May today be the beginning of a friendship so that they could know not only how much you love them, but how much we love and care about them as well. For all that we've heard, Lord, let us take it to heart and use it to love and serve you better. I pray in Jesus' name. And Cross Point said... Amen. God bless you. Make the longs feel welcome. Take some of their prayer cards. It gets lonely overseas, so make sure that they feel your hospitality and your support. God bless you. Bye-bye.